0: Ho, ho, ho! Merry Christmas!
1: Welcome back. You're listening to In-Situ Science. For each episode, we meet a different scientist and get to know them just a little bit better. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this episode I'm joined by quantitative geneticist, agricultural scientist, superstar ninja warrior, battle angel, atomic blonde, you name it, she's it. It is, of course, Sonia Dominic. Sonia, Welcome to the podcast.
0: Oh thank you for having me. <laughs> <laughs> that was a great intro
1: <laughs> I, I do uh, I feel like I should tell you this episode when it gets released it will be our special Christmas episode It's coming out on Christmas eve <laughs> oh, right So we should should try and make it special and have a good take home. Message for the listeners.
0: As long as we don't have to sing carols, that's
1: that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I feel like you know people get together and watch the special Doctor Who Christmas Eve episode. Maybe families will be getting together and listening to the Christmas Eve in Citrus. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure like laughing. Can I ask on on Christmas?
0: Uh, are you used to summer Christmases yet? No. <laughs> So originally being from Germany um, and growing up with cold, cosy Christmases with candlelight Mm. and um, not so much snow where I'm from, but... um, Yeah, even though I've been in Australia for 20 years now, (laughs) it just doesn't feel like Christmas. (laughs) It's nice, it's nice, but yeah, it's just not the same. (laughs) You
1: you haven't gone back for Christmas
0: since you've been here? No, I haven't actually. Alright. Yeah.
1: So what brought you to Australia in the first place?
0: Well, so the very first time, was actually the very first time I've been on a plane. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I went to Australia, um, so I was studying uh, agriculture as an undergraduate degree in Germany, mm-hmm. and um, I had the opportunity to do prac work overseas on a farm somewhere. And I wrote a few applications to the states, New Zealand, and Australia, mm-hmm. and uh, a cattle and Arabian horse stud property replied, and um, it sounded fantastic, so. That was my grand trip to Australia for for the first time and I spent three months on this uh, beef cattle property and absolutely loved it. Um, And met another German gentleman there who was doing his doctorate in meat science here at UNE in Armidale. Mm -hmm. So I visited him and talked to people at the at Animal Science and um, thought that that might be a really good plan to um, keep an eye on when I finish my undergraduate degree. Mm-hmm. So then uh, that would give me the opportunity to combine my found love for Australia with, um, <laughs> with my uh, science career path so. yeah. and it
1: eventuated which was great. And you've been here ever since, you came to, down to do a PhD at yep. UNE just hung around <laughs> made yourself very useful, is that right?
0: <laughs> yeah, so I was lucky enough to um, get uh, a position as a sheep industries consultant in South Australia, mm-hmm. uh, straight after my PhD, which was really nice to have a bit of a break from research, um, and I did my PhD in um, genetic aspects of, of sheep, but um, I was very keen to learn more about the sheep industry. Mm. Um, and work with some fantastic people in South Australia who, I, I they they just taught me a bit about communicating the science that I've done mm. <laughs> because um, the way you communicate to research is quite different to how you would communicate to industry, and it was a great opportunity to build my network. So mm. it, was, it was good. It is interesting. There is a real fear that if
1: you leave research. You'll never get back in, and so it's always nice to hear from people that have actually left research, and it hasn't yeah. killed their careers. It's actually enhanced their careers. That you can get out of the research bubble and and join the real world for a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: I think it was refreshing. It was just something I I needed, and yeah, it, it certainly has added to anything I've I've done since then.
1: Mm. And so now you're at the CSIRO and you're uh, leading projects in their genetics area, is
0: that right? That's right. Yes. yes. Uh,
1: are you still with sheep or anything and everything?
0: How's, how's it work? Everything. and Yep. yep. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very much a jack of all trades, I think. Um, I've worked in aquaculture for a few years right. um so prawns, abalone, oysters, Atlantic salmon um also worked in sheep and cattle. just thinking if I have anything else exotic <laughs> no think they they' they've been the main things, but also um not just across species also across different aspects, so it can be um health-related characteristics it can be production related characteristics it can be something completely novel that needs to be integrated um, in terms of uh, a new characteristic or also a new technology to get more information about the genome. So you're
1: looking at genetics in livestock. Yeah. I'm sure that some people might straight away jump to the conclusion of, some sort of genetic manipulation to make super beef or something like that. Yes. But you're not an evil scientist.
0: No, no. So you introduced me as quantitative geneticist, and yes. and that is something that no one knows anything about. I'm not sure I know what that is, really. I hear it a lot. Um, but, yeah, certainly it's it's an applied science. Um, generally people know about chemistry and biology and mathematics. Mm. and um, But... So this is Applied Genetics in Agriculture. Um, and as you correctly say, if I actually try to talk to people, they often ask me if I clone or if I <laughs> gene edit, but they, they, confu- oh, they, con- they don't confuse. It's um, Well, because no-one knows what a quantitative g- geneticist does, it's, a, it's probably a fair question. Um, But often genetics gets confused with reproduction, Mm
1: -hmm. uh,
0: where reproduction is about um, multiplying animals, Mm -hmm. reproducing. um, The genetics part is selecting the right animals to reproduce. Mm -hmm. So we basically try to help farmers to select the right ones, which is actually not that easy.
1: Yeah. So uh, not to belittle this, but it's kind of high-tech uh, a matchmaking for sheep, right? <laughs> so you're you're selecting the best of them to go on and mate and make the best little baby sheep, right? That's that's a very good description. Yes. <laughs> and so, is it does it always just come down to the best meat quality or wool quality? What are you actually looking for when you're selecting for them?
0: It would be easy if it would be only one single mm. characteristic we'd be looking at, but. Um, what farmers require of their animals is is not just to be productive but also to be healthy and and resilient to disease and um, so they're certainly and they need to reproduce so reproduction needs to be good production needs to be good but they need to be healthy so certainly um, health characteristics have come come in, so you try to identify animals that are good in all these things. Hmm. I mean, is that
1: essentially what farmers have been trying to do forever, right? They try and pick their prize steer and use them for breeding. But if you're just doing it visually or by the shine on their coat or something, you're potentially selecting for bad things that you can't see just by looking at them. Is that right? Right.
0: That is right. Um, however, there, there has been some, some research in sheep where they compare different selection methods. Mm-hmm. Um, the main outcome was that if people have a goal that they consistently work towards, they're all going to make progress. Um, however, by actually using more objective information that, that we try to provide with the research that we do, um, selection progress can be more efficient because you can be more sure that you're actually selecting the, the good ones, the, right, mm. well, the ones that, that fit the characteristics you're looking for.
1: Yeah. And the work you're doing, do we know uh, like all the genetic markers for good things? Are we at the point where we can just use this information to breed things or are we still trying to figure out how to tell what's good and what's not?
0: Sort of about a decade ago, um, DNA markers started to be used in in animal breeding and um, selection. Sort of coming over from from the human side, we always look over the fins. And Mm -hmm. and they look over the fins too, they pick up things from us as well. (laughs) 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 But... um, yeah, so at first the idea was very much like in um, human genetics that we might be in a position to find single genes that have a major effect on things. Um, and there are a few, that in particular in reproduction. Um, in New Zealand sheep, they've found a lot of major genes mm-hmm. that have a huge effect, but some of these genes are actually the effect is really large. Mm-hmm. Um, and not all that useful, um, say, for the sheep industry. There's, there's a gene called the Barilla gene, which is actually um, found in Australian sheep populations. But if um, a sheep has two copies, they can have up to six lambs, which mm. makes it a bit tricky with only two teats. So <laughs> 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 not, not ideal. Yeah. Um, so a lot of the things um, either had... Um, the effects of these genes were huge, or they might have been linked to unfavourable characteristics. For example, there's a gene called the calipage gene, which um, makes the hindquarters of sheep grow large, mm-hmm. also in cattle. But it's also linked to um, tough meat. So All right. that wasn't that useful either. Others have uh, really complicated... Uh, inheritance patterns so they're very difficult to manage for anyone uh, out in the field. So the actual approach to find genes that make selection easier. There hasn't been uh, a lot of success stories apart from maybe horns in sheep and cattle. Um, So we can breed uh, for animals without horns. Is that a good thing? Do you want that? (laughs) <laughs> it, is, it, it is a good thing uh, because often in industry they get dehorned mm. uh, because you don 't want horns so by having genetically hornless animals, uh, you basically reduce the need to having to put the animals through some painful mm. husbandry procedures so that that is a good thing it yeah. 's a very good thing um, But in general, the most successful application of of DNA information has been actually um, by using using, uh, hundreds and thousands of markers, of genetic markers, and use that to identify relationships more correctly. So (laughs) animals... normally you would think that um, animals get half of their parents genes mm-hmm. however um from from dna information we know that is actually not quite the case mm-hmm. um, and by knowing these relationships more accurately we can estimate breeding values more accurately so that's a new term i just introduced That that is actually the technology we provide to (laughs) farmers, a a breeding value that's an objective tool they can select animals on. All
1: right. How how does that even work? So we were always taught in biology, you get 50% of your genes from mum, 50% from dad. But that's not necessarily the case.
0: No, there's a lot of scrambling going on. Okay. <laughs> there's a lot <laughs> right. of scrambling going on whilst reproductive cells are formed, and um, you don't get exactly 50%. All right. <clears throat> the other advantage is by using DNA information, um, which has been huge success in the dairy industry, um, you can you can actually, well, how do I describe it? So the genetic progress is faster the earlier you can actually select animals. Okay. So you want to be sure that you select the right animals. Mm-hmm. You want to be accurate and you want to select them early. With dairy bulls, for example, because they, the bulls themselves, don't produce milk. So mm-hmm. you don't actually know how good the bull is for milk production mm-hmm. unless you actually have information of his female offspring. Right. yeah. So that makes the bull up to five, five years of age before you can actually select him. Mm. With the information of um, DNA markers, um, you can actually... Select bulls earlier without, without having to have information about milk production of their daughters. Yeah. yeah. So that has been actually revolutionary in in the dairy industry, and uh, that that technology has been taken up by storm. Mm. Bit slow in the other industries, but that's um, due to different industry structures, mm. multiple breeds. Yeah.
1: So speaking of bulls, can I ask you about Nickers? There's <laughs> a new story floating around a couple of weeks ago. Some video that went kind of semi-viral about a really big bull. What, what's going on there? Is he is he actually some freakazoid monster?
0: <laughs> oh good old Knickers. I really like Knickers because he 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 made. Well, he he created some really curious discussion around livestock. Normally, discussion can be quite controversial. Mm. People locking horns about, should you eat animals? Shouldn't you eat animals? Should you have more or less livestock? Mm. Um, So I think Nick has introduced a bit of light-hearted conversation, (laughs) which was really nice, really nice. Um, And within... Within any of um the the blogs or comments that I read, no one actually no one worried that he was some freak, mm. genetic freak, but um and he isn't really well I don't think he is <laughs> <laughs> Well, he actually wasn't a bull. He's a oh. he's a steer. Okay. Which means he's been castrated. Yeah. Which causes, so castration actually um, causes delayed, um, well, the, 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 the growth plates in the bone continue to grow, mm. which means generally castrated animals are bigger than oh, bulls. Right.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and in general, because he's a, a Holstein Friesian, which is actually quite a large breed, and the males can grow up to one meter eighty. Anyway, he he busted that by fourteen <laughs> centimeters, I think. <laughs> but um, in addition to all that, he was seven years old, or well, mm. he still is seven years old. Um, and we don't have, well, we hardly see animals mm. of that age. So an old steer is a big animal, okay, in general, and. Being from a big breed, mm. um, yeah. So I don't think he's a genetic freak. He's, he's certainly up there. Well, the footage that went around showed him amongst a
1: herd <laughs> of th- things about half his size, I'm guessing were they a different
0: breed? They there? were a different breed. Right. They were Wagyu's, which are actually quite small in general. Okay. <laughs> um, and I think they were very young. Mm. Uh, so. It was certainly not shop, but it was possibly set up <laughs> for the effect. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, these, do, these
1: breeds do vary a lot. They do. They've got to do different things. I mean, some have to make milk, some have to make meat. How much do, say, beef cattle vary based on different breeds? Or are they all kind of variations
0: on the same thing? Within the breed or... Like in between breeds. breeds. Yeah, there's there's huge variation. And it's not just um, production-related. I mean, you can have small beef cattle like Wagyu Mm -hmm. um, that have very high um, intramuscular fat. Um, But you can have big breeds as well. Um, uh, A lot of the French breeds are, are rather rather sizable. Um, <laughs> with the big breeds, the Chianina, um, it's an Italian breed and I think it's sort of more a dual purpose milk and meat, but they go up to two metres, so mm-hmm. they're, they're pretty big. Yeah. <laughs> but then you can get also Dexter, which are um, beef cattle and they're only about just over a metre. Yeah. So there's this big variation and it's as well what the people have their favourite breed farmers Mm. have their favourite breed Um, some really like to have um, sort of more a niche breed Mm -hmm. just because they like them and I think it's actually really really good because there's a lot of variation in livestock um, and by people having their favourites it's being maintained Mm. because there are endangered livestock species so it's... um, there's, there's species that not necessarily are the most productive anymore or um, they might have characteristics like really hard hoofs that made them fantastic in, in rocky environments mm-hmm. um, but if there might not be any more cattle production in the rocky environments then there's mm-hmm. no need for the breed mm-hmm. so there's this large number of, of um, cross all Different livestock species um, yeah. that are endangered. It's amazing, I particularly find
1: poultry amazing for that reason because you look at these uh, things like your your broiler chickens, which is a term I just learned as well, <laughs> like yeah, for for meat production. And they're they're weird looking things because they, they're selected for meat. They don't look like your backyard hens. And then you have all these other varieties that are kind of kind of just for show really and they've got all these weird different shapes and sizes are there breeds of livestock that are
0: i I guess essentially show livestock is that a thing well certainly as you said in chicken in chicken there is um less so in in cattle and sheep um but if you go, say, to, to an agricultural show in one of the major cities, um, they're, they're always exhibited and, and there's weird and wonderful-looking <laughs> breeds. Um, yeah. Everyone loves a Scottish Highland, <laughs> so that's a, that's a beautiful <laughs> one. Um, yeah, so there's, there's yeah, a wide range and, um, yeah, it's great when people have... Have their favourite breed and, and and keep it going. Yeah.
1: Now you've recently, as we mentioned in the intro, you're you're a superstar. Yes. Officially, now <laughs> you're recently named one of the 60 superstars of STEM across Australia. What does that mean? Tell tell us about the superstars of STEM initiative.
0: It's a very exciting program, and and I'm very excited to have been selected to participate. Um, so the goal is to to smash the stereotypes in science. Um, science is, has been male-dominated. Mm-hmm. Some science areas probably more than others. Um, but that initiative is um, putting women out there as role models uh, for young women, women of all ages really, um, Mm. also to provide mentoring um, but with the aim to get more females into science careers, Mm. encourage more females into science careers.
1: And if I were to hazard a guess, I'd imagine that livestock breeding and livestock science, that sounds like a male-dominated type of
0: industry certainly has been traditionally, but there has been a huge shift. There has Mm -hmm. been a huge shift um, in the younger researchers, postdocs. There's a lot of females, which is fantastic. Mm -hmm. Uh, But still, a lot of the uh, heads of institutes, research organisations are male. Um, A lot of the... um, A lot of the... Oh, what would you call them, the the people <laughs> who created some of the fundamental ideas mm. are male. Um, so they get invited to speak at conferences as mm. keynote speakers, plenary talks, um, and sometimes it's really difficult to think about females because they just haven't had the exposure. They mm. might have great things to say yeah, yeah. and they might be fantastic researchers, but because they haven't had yet that exposure, it's really difficult to to find them. And that's, that's all part of that initiative to mm. give females a bigger voice and to add to the diversity because that's what it's all about. It's not... not a feminist movement in terms of <laughs> goal. Us Not women. trying to push me out of a <laughs> job or anything. <laughs> it's about um, creating more diversity because it's, it's it's a fantastic thing for everything. Mm.
1: It is. It, uh, there's definitely that idea of there being a lag that we're still seeing. There's been all these uh, initiatives to get more women into STEM, but it's still so recent, and we probably won't see the real effects of that for maybe a couple of decades or a generation, who knows I mean, my own field, when I look around I I actually think it's pretty good in terms of gender representation but like you said, all of the old fundamental ideas and theories the big names in the field are still dudes from the previous generation and so it's going to take a while for those things to roll over, right?
0: Yes, yes, that's right. And I think uh, there, there's fantastic initiatives in um, from from employers to actually enable females after they had children to continue their career, which previously hasn't been the case. A lot of the times, you saw a lot of female PhD students and um, possibly postdocs, but then um, they disappeared after they had children because it was too difficult to get back into the career. Mm. Um, whereas now there's, there's many more initiatives that provide support and help males and females to mm. to continue their career after a bit of a break.
1: So do you, do you think that is as big or even a bigger issue, not necessarily getting women and girls into science but retaining them in science once they're there?
0: I think it's a combination. Um, for example, the area that, that I work in is um, requires a fair bit of math and stats. So mm. I'm I'm a computer based scientist, which is actually more exciting than it sounds. <laughs> but um yeah, traditionally that's that's an area where you don't get a lot of females mm. in math stats. Mm. Um as some of sort of the pure science, but also the applied science. Um, and I, I, I don't know if it's just a confidence thing, if it's an interest thing. Um, but I have to say, like, I'll, I'm far from being a mathematical... <laughs> <laughs> with, I was really bad at school at maths. Um, I took my dad a long time to explain to me uh, the difference... Well, that quarter is actually less than a half. I just couldn't get (laughs) it into my head that if the number got bigger, it was smaller. I just, just. Yeah, yeah, that's a (laughs) trick. Anyway, I still made this, Um, and yeah, I I think by promoting applied science in um, letting school kids, young students now about the different areas where you could actually apply these sort of things, it makes it much more fun. I mean mm. now I, I I find it it actually makes makes sense to do, <laughs> to do in the sort of maths and stats and, and whereas um yeah, if you think back at school you never could never quite see why you should learn integrals and yeah all that sort of stuff I never did (laughs) (laughs) so yeah that's certainly um, there's certain science areas I think where we just don't have enough females coming through Mm. Um, well starting careers in that area but then overall um, yeah I think there has been the problem that it's been difficult to retain females in these career paths because I mean the there are demanding, juggling, not that I can talk, I don't have children, but <laughs> <laughs> juggling career and, and a family is, is huge. Mm. Um, my respect to, to all people who do that. So, um, yeah, having having the support, and, and again, I think it's a lot of confidence as well that, that people can actually do it.
1: Mm. Like you said, it's not a feminist issue, it's a diversity issue, and particularly with the having kids thing. Hopefully if we can figure out ways to make that work as an industry, that'll open up opportunities for men to take paternity leave or to be carers and those sorts of things. (laughs) Things that you know, the the other side of this, I guess, you know, my side of it is that you guys are expected to be the breadwinners and to not have career breaks and to not have that. You're a dip in your career that's inevitable when you start a family, and that, again, is totally unrealistic. Yeah. So if we can figure this out, it should hopefully help everyone, I think.
0: Let's have a chat in 10 years' time and (laughs) see where (laughs) we're at. Pretty good.
1: But now you're a superstar, what what do you do? What does this involve, being a superstar of STEM?
0: Um, It involves... For me, a lot of training in communication, um, social media, communication at with different audiences, so mm-hmm. with policy makers, politicians, um, but one of the main aims is to go into schools and and spread the word, so yeah, um, yeah I'm going to engage with, with some of the local schools, which which will be really, really nice, and mm. it, it requires a whole different way of telling the kids what you're actually doing, because you don't want to <laughs> don't want to put them off. You want to encourage them, <laughs> so it should be fun.
1: <laughs> How are you anticipating these conversations go with kids if you're talking about livestock and eating animals and? killing animals I find whenever I do school workshops the the idea of they're, they're, they're still getting their head around that idea of things living and dying and all that sort of stuff
0: do you think that's going to be an interesting conversation to have with kids? It, it quite possibly is mm. um, yeah I, I'm quite surprised about the number of, of kids under 10 that we parents have. They've chosen to be vegetarian, and mm. they don't know where it comes from. And yeah. um, but certainly, yeah, quite possibly that is conversations that, that will come up. Um, a lot of the, the material that I would like to present is is getting kids excited about science, mm. about technology, about um, being curious um, so, yes, I haven't quite yet thought about what happens if that sort of conversation comes <laughs> up, but it's certainly not going to be a main focus.
1: <laughs> oh, no, I think once you're into you know, high school kids and stuff, I think it's fine. With my experience, it's when you end up talking to like a class in kindergartners and you bring out a specimen, the first question is they want to know, is it dead? How did it die? Did you kill it? I <laughs> <laughs> just fascinated by this specimen in front of them, which is I don't know it's been nice for me to have those conversations as well because then I have to think, yeah, actually I, I collect lots of insects for science and I put them in ethanol and why, how do I feel about that?
0: <laughs> and that I'm quite excited about having that that classroom interaction with kids because of exactly that, yeah, yeah. um being confronted by thoughts and discussions that might not go yeah. quite down the line that you intended to it's thought provoking, it opens up your mind and, and gives you the perspective as to what other people think yeah. by just exchanging with scientists um, it's, it, it's much more limiting and, and yeah, kids are, great.
1: Mm. kids are great just having that unfiltered, unbiased, just raw questions from kids is amazing. I remember the last one that really stumped me was I was doing a workshop on ants with kids, and this one kid just put their hand up and said, how do they walk? And I had no idea (laughs) how to answer that. (laughs) I said, well, they've got six legs, and he went, yeah, but like, how? How do they do it? And I, just, I actually don't know. What <laughs> do they just do? <laughs> but it's just such a fundamental question.
0: You might even find some more research topics. How do ants walk? By the, by, yeah, like yeah. talking to kids. <laughs>
1: so, as well as being a superstar, you're also a ninja warrior. Outside of your science life, <laughs> you're, you're a bit of an athlete. It's been a bit of an exciting year. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it was, was it the last season of the Ninja Warrior TV show?
0: Yeah, season two. I didn't make it to, to the TV show, though. Yeah. Um, there was a larger number of people that actually competed yeah. um, than who was featured. And um, yeah, unfortunately, I didn't make it. I was the science ninja, <laughs> true to my roots. Um, so yeah, I thought that uh, I thought that could have been a really fantastic way to create a bit of a superhero image around the scientist. Um, mind you, the interesting thing was I, I, I selected um, a lab coat. I was going to I walked onto the set in a lab coat and. Everyone I talked to backsta- uh, back, backstage said, oh, so you're the science ninja. I said, yeah, I am. <laughs> but at the same time, I also realised I was totally uncool compared to everyone else in <laughs> these really cool <laughs> outfits. So it's it's probably good that I wasn't featured because we might have to... <laughs> by, by presenting the scientist through the stereotype lab card might have Mm. not been the best idea to (laughs) to create a image. Yeah, you
1: could have turned up in gumboots and overalls or something.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That would have been much more (laughs) attractive.
1: But you were there on the thing and you did the actual course.
0: And it was a great experience. And I realised how unfit I am. (laughs) So how, how on earth does
1: one become a Ninja Warrior or decide to do this in the first place?
0: Well, my previous ambition um, in in fitness has been bodybuilding. Mm. Um, so when the first season of Ninja Warrior was on, I thought, wow, that looks like so much fun. Mm. I want to do this. And I thought, I'm strong enough. I'm doing weights. And i got a gymnastics background. I thought, I can swing about. So... Yeah ideally suited for this and my husband agreed my hairdresser <laughs> agreed too she actually suggested it. <laughs> so um yeah you had to apply for it um and it went from there so you applied with you had to fill in a form and had to submit a video and um went from there all right
1: so there wasn't like a you had to pass fitness tests or anything. you
0: uh, Yes, you did. Oh, and dear. I don't know how I did. <laughs> <laughs> I did. Maybe I was selected because I increased their diversity profile by being
1: a <laughs> middle-aged
0: female. And I was told The majority of of competitors are actually quite short. Yeah. Um. So maybe that was. Uh, what got me across the line, I, I still doubt that the performance at the fitness test was... <laughs>
1: but surely if you're doing bodybuilding, if uh, you... You're, you're, I don't think saying you're unfit is necessarily um, accurate. <laughs>
0: it's a very specific fitness. Yeah. It did not help me do shuttle runs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was rather hard. <laughs> yeah, rather challenging. So, yeah. Um... It was just a, a, a completely different fitness challenge, mm. but I'm hooked now. So now I actually got a setup in my shed. <laughs> <laughs> that um, yeah, because there's nothing around here in Armadale. Yeah, the major towns have ninja gyms, uh, but because there's nothing here yet, um, I got one in my shed. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm gonna have to come see this.
0: It's
1: pretty spectacular. It's fantastic. <laughs> But this is like this has become a sport in itself. No, like it's not just a TV show.
0: No, that's it's, that's right. Yeah. No, I think that the TV show certainly has raised the profile. But before the TV show, there were already ninja gyms around, mm-hmm. um, and um, probably concurrently, um, people who love that sport have organised themselves in um, these different. You can call it probably federations. There's the mm. Ninja Games, and <laughs> there's the Ninja Challenge League. <laughs> so um, yeah, and it's it's fantastic. It's, yeah. it's good fun, great community, good fun, very hard. Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. I've still got so much more to learn. <laughs>
1: yeah. But so you're not doing bodybuilding anymore? No, I
0: kind of have to put that to the side. Yeah. For now. yeah.
1: So I was the last podcast we did, I was talking to Mandy Hagstrom here about her strength training stuff, and I was asking her for bodybuilding advice. So the story goes, uh, if I want to be a better scientist, I have to become a bodybuilder. <laughs> I didn't hear that. Sorry. I, I haven't
0: heard her say that.
1: <laughs> As you know now, being a superstar... They want good scientists to have an online presence and to be visible and to be on social media and to have their own websites and all that sort of stuff. Whenever you Google James O'Hanlon, though, the first person that comes up is a bodybuilder on YouTube. <laughs> I have <take> a look. <laughs> so the plan is, rather than become a better scientist, I just got to get ripped and knock <laughs> this guy off the top spot. And then and then my citations will go up, surely. <laughs> so <laughs>
0: so interesting strategy.
1: So my question is, bodybuilding, like you said, it's a really specific type of fitness. Where do you start with that? Is it just about lifting really heavy things over and over again?
0: It is about lifting very heavy things. Um, it's a lot about diet. Mm-hmm. Um, the main thing is consistency yeah you have to pretty much f- I don't know five six days a week go to the gym and lift heavy things <laughs> and you have to be very consistently um, eating the right things mm-hmm. at the right time and um, if you compete or well if you intend to build muscle with other performance enhancing drugs food is <laughs> food is Helps you to st- strategically tailor your nutrition to, mm. to do that. So. I
1: mean, how, how scientific can you be about that?
0: Well, I asked Mandy, so it's oh. very scientific. <laughs> <Then you can>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's a lot of what they call brow science. Yeah. Which is anecdotal evidence, and, uh, a lot of the things actually have um, probably some science behind them. There's not a lot of research in yeah. it. In bodybuilding as such. Um, but, um, yeah, so you can. Some of the information that is out there, and, and a lot of cultures approach it based on what's out there in, in the scientific literature. Mm.
1: But I think a lot of them. Well, the, the conversation I had with Mandy was that online. You just can't sift through the amount of nonsense that's there, and and find the amount of actual and relevant science that's there without actually, I don't know, quitting your job and taking up nutrition as a, a, a career or something. There's there's so much misinformation out there. So
0: there certainly is, in and I guess with. With cultures at time, depending on how many clients they have, and I mean, there's always the good and the bad eggs in any industry. Um, so if someone has a hundred clients, they just give them a cookie cutter diet plan. Mm. Everyone the same. Yeah. Um, eating broccoli and chicken makes it pretty easy to <laughs> structure. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, now there's there's certainly some very good people that make sure that nutrition is comprehensive mm. and. and um, yeah it gets you to achieve the goals that you want
1: yeah well it being christmas obviously my diet and training is out the window <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> so next year so it should be
1: it, well i'll uh you know we'll see how this bodybuilding body <laughs> journey goes happy to help <laughs> oh yeah all right let's do it <laughs> I, want, I want to try out your salmon ladder in your gym yes <laughs> <laughs> and over the next year you'll obviously be busy doing school workshops and media training and all sorts of stuff
0: yes and a bit of research in between it <laughs> should be pretty exciting
1: uh, and and is uh the ninja warrior uh coming back for a third season do you know
0: i would assume so it's it has been very popular
1: all right so this year could be a big year
0: well, I'm going to apply again.
1: <laughs> well, if people want to follow your scientific journey. You're on Twitter. I am. What's, what's your Twitter handle?
0: Um, I am... What am
1: I? I don't know. I had it... ScienceNinja4. Oh. <laughs>
0: at ScienceNinja4.
1: All right. had it on my computer, which has just gone flat, so I'm, I'm taking your word <laughs> for it. So you can follow Sonia on scienceninja Four. And I'll keep an eye out for you on all the superstars of STEM gossip and all that sort of stuff. It's going to be an exciting year. All right, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. And thank you everyone for listening. We're on social media at In-Situ Science, or check us out at InSituScience.com. Once again, I hope you've had a good year. Thanks for joining us. Have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And we'll see you in 2019.